Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to Wish Upon a Star. This is Andel Banks, your host. Let me tell you, Wish Upon a Star is a dynamic radio program spotlighting talent in the arts arena with discussions of the challenges and some advice in making it individual, musical, literary, painting, and performing arts. As a unique part of our show, we will interview professional guests, experts in the fields of community development programs, entertainment law, copywriting, studio recording, publishing, and promoters. And today, ladies and gentlemen, it is, I mean, absolutely wonderful to have a distinguished guest such as Gabriel Janimbot. I mean, what can I say? He is the author of From Meager Beginnings, The Power of Dedication, Persistence, and Consistency. When I first spoke with Gabriel and read a preview of his book, I was impressed, humbled, and honored because it brought to mind the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave on May the 8th 1967, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, when he spoke about the Negroes' struggle for equality in America. He said that when the European immigrants came to America, they were given thousands, even millions of acres of land in the West and Midwest as a starting base for life. The Negroes who came to America were in chains and were freed as slaves in 1863, but were given nothing but a famine base and made their color a stigma of life. He then stated that the Negro was told they were to lift themselves up from their bootstraps. And he remarked, that was a profound quote to say to a bootless man who has worked and left bootless for 244 years as a result of slavery and oppression, unquote. But today, ladies and gentlemen, Gabriel has a powerful story to tell. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. Uh, I am very happy to be on the show. What we're going to do now is give you a brief overview of Gabriel's biography. Gabriel Janimbat is from Bali, Nyanga, a small West African village in the northwestern region of Cameroon in West Africa. Gabriel is the first of three siblings, the only son to his mother. Life was a constant struggle as Gabriel made his way from elementary school through college. After graduation from the university with a Bachelor of Education Administration, Gabriel sold shoes and clothes at the very doorsteps of the university he graduated from for more than two years to survive and help his family. He says after a couple of lucky breaks, he made it to a magical country. 
the United States of America, where he started off washing dishes. Knowing that he didn't fly 12,000 miles to come to America to remain as a dishwasher, Gabriel had bigger dreams. He tried different avenues and ended deciding to dive into the world of information technology. After a lot of hard work and sacrifice, he was able to secure jobs with major companies and local governments, one of which is the Mayor's Office of Information Technology, Baltimore City, where he has worked for the past 16 years. Gabriel relished the thought that in America, there is no barrier to his dreams. He ventured into entrepreneurship and established a couple of businesses. Today, Gabriel is an author of From Meager Beginnings, The Power of Dedication, Persistence, and Consistency. He also has a law degree from Concord School of Law. Gabriel founded the Gabriel Janimba Educational Academy, and he is consistent in making sure that his life is well-rounded because he loves exercising, has a fascination for flying, loves taking walks with his family, and a passion for giving back to his community. I hope I haven't taken up all the show, but <laughs> I, just, it's just, I am just so honored to have you when I found that piece about Martin Luther King, and you have proven that this, it's something that you can do in America if you try. So we're going to begin, because I didn't give the full scope of where you were from, the background. But tell us a little bit about where you came from, which is Bali, you know, Nyanga, Cameroon. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Uh, um, Bali is a small village in the northwestern region of Cameroon, um, a strictly agricultural village. Uh, where I grew up uh, with my parents and my siblings. Um, it is ruled by a fundum, um, and not many people in that village, uh, you know, did go to school when I, I, I grew up. So most children, including myself and my siblings, um, essentially walk to school seven to ten miles each way every day, um, and our farms that we worked in to survive, uh, usually it's a three- to four-hour walk. Um, it's not a metropolitan uh, city like most cities in the United States. Uh, it's a very struggling city. It's a little bit different nowadays because of um, technology and the openness of the, the world. Uh, but, you know, it's it's... You know, it's a, it's a small, very tiny city, not very big, not too many people, uh, but um, this is where I came from. Well, that also starts off about not being able to get on a bus and go to school like we do here in America. Such privileges that we do have, and I hope people are listening and hear the contrast. You also mentioned in the book that life was a constant struggle. Now, just what do you mean by that? Yes, uh, my parents uh, were not very lucky to see even the 
the walls of a second grade in elementary school. Um, so you would imagine that there was no reliable source of income. We spent most of our time in the farms rearing animals like goats, uh, pigs, uh, fowl, planting seeds, soybeans, and trees, coffee to survive. So sometimes when the season wasn't that good and the crops didn't do well, you would we were, we were entirely sure that we were not going to be able to go to school that, that semester. Or if somebody fell sick, uh, we were literally holding our hearts in our hands, hoping that, you know, situations don't get any worse because it was a situation of life and death. Um, mm. We constantly struggled to survive. We barely... Um, sold crops sometimes in the market when we went, when my mom, especially my mom and my dad, uh, took some of these things to the market. If we sold um, an equivalent of $20 in one week, we would be lucky. Mm. And we survived sometimes off of $20 in two or three weeks, trying to get, you know, everything that, you know, we were supposed to get in a, in a household of about five or six. Um, unlike in the United States where we, you know, you literally walk into the, into, the, into the grocery store and do shopping at one instance for $60, $70, which is about 35,000 francs in Cameroon money. Uh, 35,000 francs was actually my tuition for an entire year, which my parents at that point couldn't, couldn't even afford to pay for. We had to split that 35,000 francs, which is about 70 United States dollars, into about seven payments in an entire year to get just one kid to school. So life was, you know, a constant struggle. Um, getting shoes to go to school was not even an option. Uh, the walk seven to eight miles each way was bare feet, no shoes on. We looked for spots on the street where there are no stones to put our feet on. So, but uh, luckily, um, my parents, you know, didn't want us to go through the same struggles that they went through growing up as children because they didn't have an education. And so, you know, we, they poured everything into us to make sure that we survived. That's something that some people here in America can still identify, but not as much in that to that capacity. Uh, life being a struggle back in your country, what in your mind made you know or even think of leaving Cameroon? Yeah, that's a, actually a very good question. Um, the government of Cameroon, uh, all like you know, the, the United States government, and I, I know that you, the United States government is not a perfect government, but uh, in some cases they at least care about the ordinary citizens, the, the Joe on Main Street. Now, mm -hmm. the government of Cameroon, which I, I said in my book, quote, doesn't give a damn. Um, they don't care about health care. They don't care about education. So, like Martin Luther King said, you are left to survive with your own bootstraps, even if you don't have the boots. Right. Um, and so 
graduating from any level of education, first of all, you're lucky. Second, you're on your own. You're on your parents' hands, and if they don't have any means of, you know, having you pursue or continue your education, it is more than likely that you're going to end up, you know, selling clothes or selling peanuts on the streets, uh, just hanging around and not doing anything. Now, for someone who wanted to survive, to succeed, and help family and then give back to the community, your option is to start thinking about, you know, what else can I do? Where else can I go to make sure that I can fulfill my my dreams? And uh, as unlikely as it seemed, I was only hopeful. You know, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I prayed and said to myself, you know, somehow, some way, I would have to leave this country to another country, which in this case is the United States, just to make sure that I can, you know, pursue some of my dreams and help the family and, you know, help even people in this country as well as people from Cameroon. So I had to do everything that I could to try to leave Cameroon. Excellent. And and like I said, what your your story is so humbling because I think the biggest thing we have here is that we want to buy a house. And if we wanted to move out of the neighborhood, we didn't have no idea how we would do that because I'm thinking about that myself. Where in the world would I get the money to move out of here? I understand that. And we all know it's not very cheap to come to the United States leaving from Cameroon. How did you finance the entire trip, considering you practically had to do that all by yourself? Awesome question. So uh, I didn't even want to put my parents through the torture of even telling them what it took to get out of the country, right. to get out yeah. of the city, much less getting out of the country. To make them um, feel guilty, yeah. Yes. They would, you know, I, I know how much struggling they were. And I remember when it was school time, a couple months to school time, you would see the face of my parents. They literally feel bad for themselves that they, they you know, they leave, but they cannot have their kids go to school. Now, we're talking about 70 U.S. dollars at the time. Now, mm-hmm. coming to the United States, we're talking about millions. And so uh, I did not want to tell them what I am even thinking. Now, fortunately for me, my sister, uh, who who left school early because, partly because my parents could not afford to pay my tuition and hers and the other siblings, so she got married early. Now, as God would have it, she got married to... um, someone who was a chauffeur to a, he was a driver to a, an accountant who was a French citizen. Uh, he's lived in Cameroon for about 45 years at the time. And, um, when I left, uh, when I left college, I was looking for just about anything to do, including doing janitory services. I would wash cars. I would wash, I would do whatever it took. I would literally walk from Baltimore you know, an equivalent of from Baltimore City to downtown D.C., selling clothes all over the place until I got 
exhausted one afternoon, and I decided to stop by the office of this accountant uh, who was from France. And my brother-in-law was there on that day. And uh, this French guy asked me, hey, what do you do for a living? And I, I showed him the bunch of clothes I was walking around selling. He's familiar with it because he's lived in, in that city for, you know, for about 40-something years. And um, he saw that I was a, a hard-working young man, and he, tried to, he asked me, what do, you, what do you plan to do for, you know, in the future? And I, I just told him, you know, you know what? Here's a question that someone is asking me that I have never had an opportunity to answer. I've never had no. an opportunity for, you know, anybody to even ask me what am I planning to do in the future. I, I, I knew that the only folks that can ask me that question are my parents. Right. They know so well not to ask me because they don't have, if I said, oh, you know what, I want to be um, a helicopter pilot or a, a medical doctor or I wanted to travel out of the country, they wouldn't have a response for me. But uh, this guy asked me that question. I was like, you know what? Let me give it a shot. And I said, uh, I'd like to travel to the United States. And, <laughs> and the first thing that came out of his mouth was, oh, my God, the United States is a very complex and very difficult place to go or to live in because it is survival of the fittest. I was like, well... Uh, if I can survive in Cameroon and walk the distances equivalent from Baltimore City to Washington, D.C., I can survive anywhere. <laughs> I can survive anywhere. And uh, he said, well, um, I think I have um, uh, a bank account in New York, and if you can find out what it takes to go to the United States, I can provide the financial support for you to venture out there. I, I could not believe myself. I was sweating from my head to my toe because it just felt like, you know what, maybe this guy is just, it's a prank of some sort. But um, long story short, I, um, I, I looked around and a friend of mine whose brother is a lecturer, a, a, a professor at the University of Akron, um, gave me an application which I filled out, and amazingly, as God does its thing, um, I was approved to, to attend that university. This is pretty, it was, it was amazing, unbelievable. Uh, I, I remember the day I, um, I went home to tell my parents that I am leaving in five days. And I, I, I analyzed this very well in the book. Um, they, they were in total disbelief. They could not believe themselves. They just couldn't. But, yeah, that's what happened. But I know you do believe that, that God provides, and that, that when something is in your heart, it goes out into the universe. If you're a good person, it does. I've had, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people can testify to that. And so you're an, another prime example that you're making me feel so humble that uh, these types of things happen, and that's wonderful. And another most interesting thing you just said was, that you had never had anyone to ask you, what do you want to do? Do you know in America, and that may be through certain cultures, the first thing the parents ask the child, the child can be five years old, 
what do you want to be? You know, you might have heard that lament was, I want to be president of the United States. Now, this child is only five years of age, and you waited until this period for somebody to ask you that. I mean, that's, that's humbling. So, here we go, Ace yeah. Gabriel. You've got that. You're going to the university. So, with the help of the very good Samaritans, you ended up in D.C. Now what? Oh, my goodness. That's where, actually, that's where the most interesting part of it starts. But let me take you a little bit uh, behind. Okay. Um, uh, as to talking about good Samaritans, I just feel like God watches me every step of my way. Um, God understands that uh, I am a child who was born to survive, and I have the willingness to survive. And so he watches me. He's like a, 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 a shepherd of a sheep that has, doesn't know where he, where, she is go, where he is going. Now, when I flew into the United States, I remember so well, it was on June 12, 1999, and I flew into O'Hare for the first time, confused and tired after a long flight, and I had nobody waiting for me at the airport to pick me up. Mm. Mm. I had 100 U.S. dollars on me, five $20 bills clipped into one. I got to O'Hare. And as we all know, O'Hare is one of the busiest in the entire world. Yeah. I was confused. I didn't know what terminal I was going to. With that confusion, uh, I ended up staying over there in Chicago instead of picking up the connecting flight to Akron, Ohio. Now, I was foolish enough to not sleep at the airport and... Uh, decided to go take a room at uh, a holiday inn and spend about eighty or ninety dollars to pay for that room, and now I don't have probably have less than ten dollars on me that day. Mm. Uh, and interestingly, I did not sleep all night because I didn't know where the heck I was. My parents didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was the next step. I didn't know what was the next thing to do. Now the following morning. Get this. This is a very interesting story. The following morning, I took a shuttle from the hotel to the airport. And this guy, and he's white, uh, saw me, and I think he saw that I was very tired. And we struck a conversation, and, and, and he asked me where I was from. And I told him, I'm from West Africa. I just came into the country for the first time. And he asked me, who, is, is there anybody picking you up? And, you know, wherever you're going? I said, no. Uh, and he was like, okay, where are you going? I said, I'm flying into Akron, Ohio, uh, and I'm supposed to be in school. Um, and it's a Sunday. He said, well, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I, can, I can drop you off in school when we get there. Now, you would think I should be scared. Like, oh, I don't know this guy. I should not get into his vehicle. Just about anything can happen. Right. But he was so kind enough. When we got into uh, Akron, Ohio, now, the distance from Akron, Ohio Airport to the school, well, it was long. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a, a pretty good drive. When we got to school, the school was closed. 
And he said, uh, you know, it looks like the school is closed. There's no way you can get into school. I cannot take you to my home because nobody is expecting me and a total stranger in my house. I said, you know what? That's fine. I understand. But you did it. You know, I am very grateful. You dropped me. You, you picked me up from the airport all the way up here. He left me on the sidewalk and went. But I think something told him, like, girl, you just left this guy on the street. He's from Africa, 12,000 miles away. There's, there's, there's nobody to help him out. He came back and asked me, do you have any friends or relatives or you know, anybody in the country that you can go to <laughs> before you come back? And that's how I landed in D.C. And he paid my boss. He actually paid my boss, Greyhound boss, for 60 bucks, and then gets me $20 more for food. That's how I have been lucky in everything I do. God watches over me. Came to D.C., um, and my cousin was here. He never knew I was coming. But he did take me to a restaurant, a seafood restaurant in College Park, Maryland, where I started off washing dishes. I have very interesting stories about my, my work in that restaurant. Um, I, I, I hopefully time permits and I would, I would tell you most of those stories and it's, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> like I told you, that's all in your book and I hope everybody uh, will absolutely get the book. We're going to mention that about 80 times before we get off the air. But to continue, <laughs> I don't know, would you, tell me about Mr. Dave Nelson. And your encounter with him. Hopefully he's listening to this broadcast because I sent it out over the line. That's one of the that's one of the things I am I'm hoping that someday yeah. somehow I will get to meet Mr. Dave Nelson. Okay. Because he was when I met him in Chicago, he went for a fishing trip uh and was heading back to Cincinnati. You know, when I got to D.C., uh, he gave me his phone number when I was coming. Okay. Now, when I got to D.C., I stayed in touch with him. But he had this uh, phone system where you have to announce who you are before they let you in when you call, when you make a call. Right. So I tried uh, on several occasions to keep in touch with him. But every time I called Mr. Dave Nelson's house, I, they turned down the, the, the call from coming in. And, you know, in 2000, I think it's, it's November of 2000, uh, I succeeded to get through once, and we spoke. And he was very happy to talk to me, to find out that I'm doing well, I'm not homeless at the very least. And, but after, since then, I have not heard from him. I am literally, hmm. you know, hoping that someday, I've done a lot of Google search, and there's so many Dave Nelsons in, in Ohio. I don't know if he's moved out of you know, of the state. Um, but my hope is that someday I would get in, in, in touch with Mr. Dave Nelson because, you know, I need to just, whatever it is, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for, you know, you know, opening your arms to a complete stranger, someone you don't know, you, you know, giving him a ride, paying for his bus fare and giving him, you know, money for food. That's just, you know, it, it, it is, it is what America is, and yeah. it is what America should be. And I, I am so thankful. And it's, it's the same way 
that America opened up to open up, you know, its doors, uh, its companies, its jobs for me, and literally turned my life around. And I am I am very very grateful for the country, for the people, you know, for letting me achieve at least some aspects of my dream. I am very very grateful. Yeah, based absolutely, and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm glad to say that America did treat you that well. So far as trying to connect with uh, Dave Nelson with this technology, which you are quite well aware of, being an engineer yourself, that once you put it on the media, somebody's going to pick it up. It could be a cousin, an uncle, a cousin, a niece, or anything. So if you do exactly what you just finished telling me and put it on, I don't know if you go on to media, but if you do, somebody's going to pick it up. That Dave Nelson or somebody who know him will pick up that information there. You're getting right. started now, Gabriel. You, you're feeling a little relaxed. You've been helped, and really that's a motivational thing emotionally when somebody does help you. But up until then, did you talk to your family back home and let them know what was going on as well? So <laughs> that's the other thing. Now you, you, you ask this question. I'd never thought about how things were in those days. Now, technology wasn't advanced like it is now. Yes. Yes. I think for the first one or two years, I did not speak to my parents at all mm. um, because there were no telephones in my village at the time. And um, the oh, only thing I, I did, yes, there were, there were no telephones. There were no emails at the time. I remember so well when I came, emails were like, you know, literally flying on Air Force One. Like, how many times do you get to fly on Air Force One if you're not the, you know, the first family or you're not the president of the United States, right? There were no emails. Like, so the one bet I relied on was snail mail. I sent okay. tens of letters home, even without getting a response. I just was so homesick. I sent letters upon letters upon letters even though I didn't hear back from my parents. At least I knew that yes. they were alive. But it was the only, that was the only way of communicating with them at the time, sending letters. And I, from the United States to Cameroon, the letters would take at a minimum 30 days at a time. 30 days. And then if they write back, it would take probably another um, another 45 days. Why? Because when the letters left from here, it was, it was quick. It was fast. But when it, get, when it got home, it is exactly. slow. Exactly. You know, yeah. things are not really as, you know, as quickly as here. But um, I didn't hear back from, from my dad, from my mom. Um, occasionally, you know, we would organize for phone calls um, to someone who has a cell phone, and the lines were horrible. The lines were horrible. So it was, yeah. it was, you know, speaking to mom was like, and dad was like Christmas. And I was so happy when that happens most of the time. I understand. I look at a lot of movies like that uh, where the only hope this particular person, like they were overseas and they were in the war, or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And they did not know about in most cases, the wife and the children. 
But the fact of the thought that they were alive and they were there, this particular character in the movie would always give them hope. That really kept them going, even though they didn't hear from him for two or three years. But it was just right. that hope that you did send that message. What we're going to do right now, Gabrielle, is take a little break, get a drink of water, and we'll be back in 30 seconds, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Let's get loose. This trick. Yeah. That, that, that. What up, y'all? Just came yeah. to your city to serve us up. What up? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Show me love. Show me love. Hey. Uh, hop off the plane to a new show what up? And all the shorties, they be waiting on me Thugs packing they pistols But ain't nobody aiming on me, Not me. Got a pocket full of fresh dough Dope, baby. So you know I got a bacon, homie bacon for me. And I'm thankful Get whatever you want for Well, welcome back This is Andale Banks, your host of Wish Upon a Star and we want to let you know also that you can listen to any of our previous broadcasts in the archive link at our show page at bbsradio.com forward slash wish upon a star hashtag archive. We also welcome through email at musicradio34 at gmail.com any comments or suggestions for the show. We are streamlined the broadcast on any of our 50 affiliate stations at bbsradio.com forward slash affiliate partners. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue with our distinguished guest, of which I am so honored to have, Gabriel Janimbach, one of those, I mean, I, I just can't describe it. I'll say bootstrap bootstrap uh, uh, people who came to the United States. And when he did, he is now the author of From Meager Beginnings, The Power of Dedication, Persistence, and Consistency. He's an IT engineer and entrepreneur and the founder of Gabriel Janinbach Educational Academy and has a law degree from Concord School of Law. Coming from Valley Nanga, Cameroon. Another thing we want to talk about, Gabrielle, as all of the wonderful things that you've done for your family, what your family has done for you to get you to this point. Hello? Okay, what I want the, to ask you, losing anyone is tough in life. How did your dad's passing away change you or affect you since you were so far away? Yes. Uh, yeah, like you rightly said, losing anyone um, yeah. is not fun. Um, even if it's just a, sometimes friends. I've, I've watched uh, TV and I see somebody, uh, a family lose a family member uh, in the hands of violence and uh, things like that, but Dad's passing away was a huge, huge um, issue for us. It was it created a big vacuum that cannot be filled. Um, he he was there like a, a, the protector of the family, the the guide of the family, um, and you know for once I realized that 
I was a man when when he passed away. Usually, when you have a dad around or a mom, you always feel like you know what. There's some 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 side of you still make you feel like you're a child because there's a dad. Um, yes. But that's passing away to the family was a, a big loss. But I, on the flip side of things, he was over 90-something years old. He lived a very full life. Um, he cared for the family. And, and he was a little sick when, when he passed. There was, a, there was a point when we actually you know, felt like it's a good time for him to transition. Um, yes. And, and, you know, and we prayed on, his, uh, on, his, on the side of his bed and, you know, and let God do the rest for, for him and for us. So it was, but, but you know, generally speaking, it, it was tough, but we were able to handle it. And up to today, we still feel the impact of, of his absence. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like you said, my mother passed when she was 93, but the loss, because she was my best friend. My father had passed maybe 10 years before that, but uh, the pain is still there and always be there, and I just lost my son two years ago. Oh, sorry to one hear week, that. One week before Mother's Day, and this is oh, the wow. second year. Oh, wow. That must be tough. So, oh, man. It's too rough to even still talk about. It's just too rough. So that's why I'm asking. Also, how is the family and especially your mom coping with this passing away? Now she's there. Does she have anybody else there with her or what? My mom, I think my mom took that passing away the hardest because uh, he was her best friend. And her, uh, her confidant. And they spent most of the time together, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, they were married for more than 50 years, if I, if I, if I can remember. And if you, if you have someone that close for you for that long, and all of a sudden the person is gone, you know, it's, it's, it's not funny. It's a big vacuum um, that cannot be you know, filled by anyone else. But mom... Mom took it hard, but he, but she also understood that that's how life is, and she, you know, came up with a, a coping mechanism. And and the one thing that mom would not do or didn't do for a very long time is leave the compound. She stayed around diligently for an entire year in that compound, not going anywhere, and said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, think about my husband for at least a year before I can do anything. I try to bring mom to, to the United States several times, and she said, no, I, I need to grieve my, my husband. I need to stay by him. Even though he's gone, I want to be here, and I'll let you know when it's time. And, you know, you wouldn't That's have to pressure me. You wouldn't have to ask me. And, um, but, and, and she's home right now with my, my sister, and with the grandkids, and you know, we talk from time to time now that there's there's a phone, um, and so. But yeah, she's she's um she's doing very well. She's doing very well. Excellent, because you know she had a good life when he was alive. Yes, yes. And, and talking about mm-hmm. you know Go the ahead. good life is just what what my dad always said to me was, and I, I think you know most most people should take this as a lesson. Uh, on the show is this, that you don't wait for someone to pass on 
before you start doing things for them. And right. my dad had always told me that, look, I'm alive. If there's anything you want to do for me, I'm not saying that you must do anything, but if there's something that you want to do for me, this is the time. This is the time for you to do whatever you wanted to do for me. Don't wait until the day I am dead, and then you do all these things because I am not seeing these things. You know, so if you could, <laughs> do something mm. for a loved one while they're alive. Exactly. If you, if you want to say, you know, I love you or uh, I, this is a, a, you know, whatever you want to do for anybody you care for, don't wait till that person is gone and then you scramble to, you know, do X, Y, Z. Because at that point, it sounds more, feels more like it's, it's a PR thing. But this guy or woman that you're doing this for is gone. He or she doesn't see it any longer. So I heeded to that advice from my dad. I made several trips to Cameroon, um, sometimes two or three times in, in a few months. And those trips were not cheap, but I didn't really care so much because, you know, when he's gone, I can't make those trips for him any longer. So... Oh, absolutely. If you see the mountain that needs to be climbed, you know whether to climb it or not because it's that important. Whatever the right. risk. And that's what you did. So that's great. We have a little saying here, too. But don't be giving me no flowers after I'm gone. Give me my flowers now. <laughs> and people say, well, do you know how much flowers cost? <laughs> Take this balloon and be happy. Right. <laughs> so everybody brings balloons. In the section in your book, I haven't read the entire book, but in one section you said, and I, I couldn't understand it, totally said there are good people in America, and I didn't know how to weigh that. So were you saying what we were talking about before, how people help you, or were you saying something else? There yeah, are good well, people in America, you know. Well, <laughs> if you listen to the political atmosphere at this point, uh, okay. and, and you, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. Um, yeah. The you know the 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 way politicians have decided to cast the United States and you know divide the country the country into you know this you know Muslims and non-Muslims, black and white, and you know all of that stuff. Um, yeah. You would you would think that you know the United States is not a country that's welcoming to people that are not born in this country. You would think that, you know, the fact that, you know, this little kid coming from some remote village in West Africa mm -hmm. has no chance in this country, you know, coming in. But that's truly not the image that some of these right. politicians portray about this beautiful country. It's a country that opens its doors to complete strangers, Right give yes. people the opportunity to do what they want to do as long as they're on the right side of life and on the right side of law. You can do pretty much whatever you put your mind onto. Now, you know, I've, besides Mr. Dave Nelson, I have run across many, many American citizens, um, both Native and non-Native American citizens, whom, you know, you, you, know, you would think at some point that, you know what, this is probably my brother because of the way they treat you. They're hospitable. They are, are generous. Um, 
you know, they, they, they try every way possible to help you. So, you know, America is not as bad as some people actually, you know, say it is, or as, you know, some people actually portray that on TV. In, in one of the chapters in my book, I actually um, made reference to the fact that yes. if you truly want to know someone or some place, you don't listen or see things from some other person's perspective. You really want to come close so you can know exactly who this person is or how this place is. I, I say this, for example, Baltimore City, where I worked in for a very long time. The image that most Americans or most, most people out of Baltimore City have about the city, it's all, you know, this is always bad. It's always, you know, crimes left and right. You know, you can't, you can't walk freely in the city. That's really not the case. But when you come down here, I know there's some parts of the city that's not great. But generally speaking, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful city. It's a city where, you know, it has its own share ups and downs. But the people are very good people. Just like in most people in most cities or most, most corners in this country are very welcoming people. They're good people in the country. They're very good people. We should not, you know, just you know, listen to what's happening with this presidency or, you know, this government at this point and think that, I'm, you know, all is gone. No, all is not lost. Absolutely not. I belong to the Art Society of Baltimore. And, matter of fact, I used to work where you're working now. I used to teach computer technology. I wrote the program for the training program for the city of Baltimore under the mayor's office of employment. Oh, wow. And I think I taught about before I I was in D.C. and I was in Virginia teaching at the college. And the trip got a Mm. little too much for me. So I came to Baltimore. And, I mean, with open arms, I had like maybe six or 7,000 students I taught. Then I was a motivational speaker, and all these people were people who wanted to go somewhere and do something. So you're absolutely correct in your assumption, even though you're from another country. Uh, Some countries, I know for myself, won't let people in like America does. They will not open their doors like the United States does. So, no, no. As brilliant as you are. I'll give you a a short example. I made a trip to Germany. Um, at some point, I, I, I think it was uh, 2007, and Germany is not a very, you know, w- you know, welcoming country when it comes to black people, for, you know, especially black people. Yeah, um, hospitality. And yeah, hospitality. They, yeah. They, and they don't, they, they're not ashamed to say it. They don't hide right. it. Right. They make it yeah. known. And as, as soon as I walked into the uh, train station, I got... Uh, Five police officers came up to me, and I didn't speak German. And clearly, I was being profiled because of the fact that I was black. And I remember so well in the train where I sat, not a single white person came next to me. It didn't mean much to me because I'm not, I'm, I don't see color. I'm, I'm not afraid of you know, people looking at a black man as somebody who they should be afraid of. But that's what it was. And then the other thing I noticed in, in, at the train station in Germany was that all the janitors 
those who cleaned out the toilets were all Africans. And, you know, I, I was a little picked up by that. You know, I, you, you couldn't really blame them because I think that's what the system, um, the system actually puts those people in that way. Now, the, the family I went to visit uh, in Germany at the time, fortunately they were leaving Germany because they couldn't make any progress in Germany as black people. They, there was a child who, were, who was in elementary school, and this little girl, as beautiful and smart as she is, or she was at the time, was told by her elementary school teacher that the best she can be in life is be a tailor. That's the best thing she can be in life. Now, can you imagine saying this to a child who's still growing, dashing his, her dream, you know, saying the best you can be in life is a tailor? Now, you know, America is not like this, at least for now. It's not. But some countries are worse yeah. than we have it in this country. So we're good. Right. Yeah. You know, in some, yeah. in some, in some cases. I, I know... I know Jim Crow is not gone, completely gone, but it's not as bad as it was in those days. Right. What language do you speak as your native uh, tongue? So uh, Cameroon has about 250 different tribes and 250 different languages. So I managed to speak uh, at least three of them. Uh, But my native language is Mungaka. Mungaka is a native dialect that's spoken by Balinyonga. And um, it's, the, the Bible is, was actually translated into our language at some point. It was supposed to be a national language, but I'm not sure, exactly sure what happened and it didn't. But um, there's a lot of people um, that speak my language because it was literally translated into the Bible. But Mungaka oh. is the language. Okay. Oh. Great. You're smart. You're brilliant. I mean, like I said, I can't say it more than enough how humble I am to have you on the show. I want to make sure we get in some uh, information on where they can get your book. But by being so talented and educated, you could have been anything. Why not Madison? Why not a county? Why did you pick IT and law? So that is a very interesting question. Um, dad, for example, Dad had always wanted me to do medicine. And because one of his brothers was a surgeon. In fact, okay. he's one of his favorite brothers was a surgeon. But medicine had never been one of the things I wanted to do. Now, when I came to this country, law was the one thing I wanted. In fact, I went to... Uh, UDC and applied for um, law school, mm-hmm. but it was so expensive I couldn't make it at that time. Um, I, I, you know, I decided to uh, just you know start up at the restaurant and move up the chain. Now, IT at the time was you know was it. Everybody was doing it, and it it was a, a, a an easy route for me to get established. Um, okay. I took courses, mm-hmm. and it, it, it was, and not only that, I, I, I liked dealing with computers, and um, at the time, it was, 
you know, what most people did. There were jobs available for, uh, in computing. And so I, I ventured into that. And then the other really passionate thing I have or I like to do is giving back. Giving back is, you know, something I, I'll do anytime, anywhere, any day. Uh, not just in Africa, here too. Because, you know, in the city, as you know, under the bridge in 83, you have people living under the bridge. I, 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 so I, I've been out there on Christmas Day, uh, on Thanksgiving, giving out food, blankets, you know, just, mm-hmm. just giving out is one of the, the things I, I really, really like to do. I, I, I say to myself, if, if I ever happen to get rich, you know, one of my best friends will be people that, you know, need stuff, people that I can help change their story, change their lives, just like mine, because that's where I am at today. If God wasn't a giving God, you know, through other people, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be talking to you. So that's one of the things I, I, I'm very passionate about. Yes, yeah, so am I, because I have a, a production company, and every time we have an affair, we always have a group that we donate some of the profits to, because that's what we want to make sure we get in. Right now, I want you to take as much time as you want and tell everybody how they can get your book and maybe even give us a little synopsis of it. You can go right ahead because we have about four minutes. All right. So, real quick. So, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's, I think it's been looked up, looked up so many times. If you just search for From Mega Beginnings, it will show up. I think that's the only book on, on Amazon that has that title, From Mega Beginnings. Now, okay. I am working on a website, gabbysbooks.com. It's going to be up pretty soon, and it would have a ton of information about this book, which you can get. Now, I'm urging everybody to get this book, because the, even though the story in this book is really my story, but it's more of an inspiring, more of a teaching story to tell people that, look, where you come from, has no bearings, no barrier to your success. Okay. What you I have another like. show coming up behind us, Gabriel. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to definitely have you back on the line because I want you to uh, come back on the show and talk about your educational academy that you're uh, set up. So right okay, now, sure. ladies and gentlemen, we're going to say thank you very much to Gabriel Jindenbach, author of From Meager Beginning, The Power of Dedication, Persistence, and consistency. Gabrielle, I'll be talking to you later. So thank you, you so much. Now, thank you so much for having me on the you. show. Absolutely. And I'll speak to you later. We'll take a break and we'll be back in one second. your host, and Denise Banks, your coordinator, saying keep reaching for the stars, and thank you so much for listening to Wish Upon a Star on BBBSRadio.com forward slash Wish Upon a Star hashtag archives if you want to hear the show again.
Bye-bye, and God bless.